The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Cochrane to Voyager. All systems are nominal, increasing speed. We'll keep up with you as long as we can. Warp 7. Warp 8. How's this dilithium matrix holding up? Warp 9. There's a slight variance in the warp field, but nothing to worry about. Okay. Taurus to shuttlecraft Cochrane. You're clear for transwarp velocity. Acknowledged. Engaging transwarp drive in four, three, two. Warp 9.7. 9.8. He is exceeding our maximum velocity. I am switching to long-range sensors. Warp 9.95. He is approaching the threshold. Engine output at maximum. Velocity. Warp 10. Yes. Transwarp engines are stable. So are the nacelle pylons. I'm going to... Oh my God. Lieutenant, can you hear me? Captain, he just disappeared off sensors. Increase sensor gain to maximum. Nothing. I can't find him. He's gone. Morning, London. It is Thursday, October 6, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Hey, if you're going faster than the speed of light... Is it dark? Or do you just keep bumping into the light that's ahead of you? <laughs> hey, Robert, that's one of the subjects I guess we'll be musing about today, shall we? Yes. Yeah, just one of the things we want to talk about today. Another couple, We have a rather eclectic show today, I guess. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call in to join us if you care to. And uh, a couple of the other subjects we're looking at is uh, just because, protest for the sake of protest. Would I be wor- wording that right in, in the sense of how you might be looking at that later? Robert? Well, it's up to, up to question why these people are protesting on Wall Street, but we're going to try to nail it down oh, near the end of the hour. And I'll be taking a look later on in the show at the issue, you know, sometimes a banana is just a banana. (laughs) And all the cries of uh, racism that occurred over that incident, the banana incident at the uh, JLC, and perhaps what it means. But first off, I wanted to talk about knowledge, understanding, and perhaps a bit about the right and left. This was sort of precipitated in my mind, and I'm kind of musing here a bit, Robert, because of our guests (laughs) last week on... um, you know, Chris, Christopher Essex and um, Lawrence Solomon, who we had on about the experiments at CERN and some of the scientific discoveries going on there, which I understand is what you'll be looking at with the issue of um, faster-than-light concepts and the issues later on. Yeah, CERN plays a, a small role. <laughs> and I, was thinking, yeah, <laughs> I was thinking, you know, last week... A subatomic role. Even though everything we discovered was really fascinating, we didn't really learn anything we didn't know, did we? But we understood it better. Would that be... There's a difference, isn't there? Yes, there is. And I started thinking about that, learning, or knowledge and understanding. How different are these two things? I started looking up dictionary definitions because that's part of what this show is about is we talk about epistemology a lot, about how we know what we know and how we know that the knowledge we have is true and accurate, which the test is always, of course, reality. So I looked up some, uh, some definitions... And this will lead to more on Christopher Essex, something he said in the show last week. And I looked up uh, the definitions of knowledge and understanding, comparing the one I found in the dictionary with the one I found in Ayn Rand's lexicon, where she, of course, always defines key terms. And it's fascinating just to see the differences and what's missing and why her her definition is so much more accurate all the time. Here's a... I always use... A simple Funk and Wagnalls dictionary. Here's their definition of knowledge, okay? As opposed to understanding. This is knowledge. Quote, uh, one, a result or product of knowing. Information 
or understanding, see they're using that word there to, 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 to define it, acquired through experience, practical ability, or skill. Deep and extensive learning, erudition, the cumulative culture of the human race. We always say that culture is a body of knowledge, don't we? That's one of the things we define culture by. And a sure conviction, certainty, the act, process, or state of knowing, cognition, any object of knowing or mental apprehension, that which is or may be known, specific information and notice. Now, their definition of understanding is a little different, and it has some in- other implications to it that I never thought of before. Um, and this, again, is Funken Wagnalls. The act of one who understands, or the resulting state, comprehension, the power by which one understands, the sum of the mental powers by which knowledge is acquired, retained, and extended, the facts or elements of a case as apprehended by any one individual, an informal or confidential compact, you know, like we have an understanding in that sense, and also the thing agreed upon, an arrangement or settlement of differences or of disputed points. And as an adjective, I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, possessing, possessing comprehension and good sense, you know, tolerance or sympathetic. Sympathy, rather, being sympathetic. You know, we say, oh, he's a very understanding attitude. It means he cares about somebody. He's not just knows something, but cares about something. It's kind of a thing about understanding and I, I don't really think about normally. Now, when I compare those two definitions to the definitions by Ayn Rand, and here's her definition of knowledge. She says, knowledge is a mental grasp of the fact or facts of reality reached either by perceptual observation or by a process of reason based on perceptual observation. Now, I noticed in the dictionary definition, there's no reference to reality or the fact that knowledge has to be real. Sort of implied, though, isn't it? Is it? I would think so. What are you talking about if it's not reality? It's... Well, people know a lot of things that it just ain't so. You know that statement. Oh. Is that knowledge? In other words, falsehoods. Falsehoods and, that, that are expressed as knowledge. So can we? So if you're going around the world with all these weird ideas in your head that don't match reality, is can you actually call that knowledge? I don't think so. And I think it's more accurate to say that knowledge is a, is a grasp of the facts of reality, which is not even in the dictionary definition. I would I would place that as a preamble. <laughs> you know. Mm. And then here's here's her definition of understanding. To understand means to focus on the content of a given subject as against the sensory, visual or auditory form in which it is communicated. To isolate its essentials, to establish its relationship to the previously known, and to integrate it with appropriate categories of other subjects. And she says integration is the essential part of understanding. So to understand something means not just to grasp a fact, which is to know it, right? but to be able to in- integrate that fact into the bigger picture and understand where it fits. And I think that's where most people have a lot of problems, <laughs> especially in the fields of, um, I guess, the humanities, politics, philosophy. Because there you're talking about very high-order abstractions, concepts, which require yes. a major amount of fundamental knowledge, and of course all knowledge is hierarchical. And if you don't understand the fundaments of it, and you can't make the connections all the way up to the abstractions, mm-hmm. you're going to make errors. Exactly. So, uh, you know, she, she, she goes on about understanding. She says the predominance of memorizing is proper only in the first few years of a child's education while he's observing and gad- gathering perceptual material. From the time he reaches the conceptual level, which is what you just talked about, and she says that's at, you know how you identify that time? When they start to speak. Mm-hmm. Language is the first evidence of con- concept formation. Of course, words yeah. are concepts. That's exactly well, right. Well, represent concepts, yeah. His education requires a progressively larger scale of understanding and progressively smaller amounts of memorizing, which would be like knowing without understanding. Mm-hmm. And that's that's necessary, too. So, you know, I was thinking about it, and I, I was realizing, geez, you know, we, we all know a great deal more than we understand, don't we? And we do know it. Is it false because we know it and we don't understand it? I'm, I'm referring to real knowledge, not knowledge of things that just ain't so, which we were just talking about, which is almost a form of unknowledge. But you can arrive at, quote, real knowledge in some weird ways on, uh, you know, not by understanding it initially. We knew, we knew the sun made the earth warmer before we had our meeting last week with Christopher Essex, didn't we? Yeah, of course. But, and we knew it. It was correct. It was a correct conclusion. But when we saw the process, boy, that wasn't the process I thought was going on. 
I thought all that was happening was, well, beam straight from the sun, hit the earth, done. You know? No, it's, it's the difference between knowing about a correlation. We could correlate our climate change with mm. uh, activity on the sun, but we didn't understand the mechanism. And now that understanding adds to our knowledge. It's exactly. A, understanding is another piece of knowledge. Now, I, I, I've often joked with you that, that I, you know, despite all everything we say about reason and all that, that I do a lot of things superstitiously. And we, we, we mm -hmm. have fun with that. And, and you know what I mean by it. But, you know, I do behave superstitiously with respect to certain things because it works. <laughs> okay. And one of them is my computer, as I've explained with you, uh, about one program I always have. I have this one video capturing program, and it doesn't just work the way it should according to the manual. I've learned after years and years of, of repeated experience <coughs> that unless I reboot my computer first and do it two times, <laughs> unplug the plug from the Dazzle device, which is the external device, once and put it in, if I don't go through this routine, I will not maintain my connection when I go to want to capture something. So you don't know why I or don't you don't understand... Why. But you still have to do those and things. Every yeah. time I don't do those things, it, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's how a lot of, uh, I, I guess, experience builds as knowledge. That's an experience I had. It, I did form a sense of knowledge. I know something about that computer. If you were there trying to work that thing right now, you wouldn't know how to do it unless I was there to help you out. And yet I don't understand a clue of why it's doing that. And I know there's a reason. I mean, if I hired a technician, he could, he could explain it to me. You could tell me, well, here you got a glitch in this program here, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what I'm saying. Yep. So um, the other issue, too, is, is that knowledge, in order to accumulate and to become part of our society, is only one way it can work in, in, a, in only one environment, and that's, a no that's the environment of volunteerism. And I think that was part of the problem we were dealing with with the whole climate debate last week is that so much of the one side of the debate does not exist in that environment of voluntarism and consensual understanding. The, the, the one side has a complete uh, closed mind, you know, the science is in. You know, that's your IPCC um, position on climate change. And I remember last week Chris Essex commented in response to my question on whether the two sides in the climate change controversy were generally divided by, by right and left. Do you remember what he said? He says, uh, no, there, there aren't two sides, just the wrong side, and which is the science, the settled side, and everybody else, he said. Remember that? Yes. And, uh, but his argument was that the other side is completely open to new knowledge, and there's no general agreement among the group of scientists who are not on the IPCC, IPCC side of the debate. So, you know, I can see why, as a professor and mathematician, he would say this, but because I'm sure he perceives the various theories and disagreements on the more objective and open-to-argument side as being politically non-cohesive. And I think I let him get away with it, Robert, but even though I think he was validating my, my claim that the debate is between right and left, and I'll tell you why. You know, we, we've argued how many times on this show that all of the open and public debates on controversial issues seem to only be occurring on what we call, generally, the right the left is almost defined by being closed to debate at all, you know? And I think that's where the political debate is. The left does not debate. It asserts, it forces. And that's a universal phenomenon with extraordinarily few exceptions. I remember first focusing on this when uh, I discovered that John Stossel, the American uh, uh, newscaster and commentator, experienced the exact same thing. That even with his dispute with many people on the right, he said at least they would listen to him. You know, but uh, the left would never, never. And so, you know, we, be we begin every show with the reminder that we're not right-wing, just right. But even beyond the show's bias and, and its host's bias, consider the nature of the majority of our guests, you know, who've appeared on this show over the years. You know, we've, we've argued with them, we've discussed with them, but they're all, really, aren't they all really on the right, on that? Politically, pol yeah. on the right hand of the spectrum. Exactly. Yeah. Including the right-wing that we always say that we're not. So the science and settled argument, I think, is a purely leftist point of view, a view that does not debate, but asserts, misrepresents, and forces. That's the key. I, I watch it all the time. The force is necessary, of course, because rational people do not act against their own self-interest or against what they know to be true, which is the goal of the Green Movement. But uh, we'll never know or understand now, this is another issue entirely, but I'm not getting into it. But, you know, when we talk about knowledge, one thing we'll never understand is, cause, is the why of things. We'll always know how, 
and that something might happen, but there is no why. You know, why does the gravity pull down instead of up, right? That's not a question that even is worthy to ask. You can't ask that question. There is no why. It just does. It's property of the universe, and you have to live with it. It exists. That's Existence what we exists. have. To, impl- to ask the exactly. question why, you're asking for a purpose. A purpose implies some sort of intelligent... Um, I don't know, uh-huh. a puppeteer well, a purpose, pulling yeah. the strings Some, for some reason. An objective, yes, yeah. that, that is meant to be, uh, you know, seen to at the end. But that's all I was thinking about. You know, just just an interesting how we think and how we arrive at conclusions. And I'm going to be very curious to hear what you're going to have to say on the other side of this break about this faster than light stuff that's going on at the CERN. Um, what is it? Uh, accelerator? Is that what they call it? Accelerating? Par- particle accelerator? <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually it was okay. in Italy, but yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay, we'll be, we'll be back right after this. I got a uh, computer recently. That's like one of the biggest things in my life. I'm really trying to get like more like, you know, into this whole technology thing. I'm awful with computers. I'm one of those guys, basically every button I hit on my computer, my computer has to like shut down, like regroup, somehow like deal with my idiocy, you know what I mean? Then there's always like some eight-year-old I see later on on a laptop, like, ah. He's like breaking into the Pentagon, downloading movies that haven't even been made yet. I just got a plane ticket for six bucks. He just want to like slam his head in the thing. I'll tell you the only thing I like about my computer is I really enjoy spell check. No, I love it. You know what I love about spell check? You don't have to be close to getting the word right. Have you ever noticed that? All you got to do is just get it like somewhere like within the ballpark of the word. It's almost like your computer can just start guessing, like, ah, sh- I don't know, a dinosaur? You know, when you're sitting there like an idiot, like, nah, I wasn't trying to spell dinosaur. So then what does your computer do? It starts throwing out, like, every D word it can possibly think of, like, okay, how about dictionary? Diary, any of this stuff looking familiar? Are we moving towards the goal or away from it? You ever spell a word so bad, though, your spell check has absolutely no clue what the hell you're trying to spell? What do you end up getting? You end up getting, like, a question mark. You got a million dollars worth of technology just looking back at you like... Just like, you got me, buddy! Which is pretty amazing, because I have all the words! Yeah, and that doesn't look like any of them. I can't even make a guess that's so screwed up. Would you, like, pass out and whack your head off the keyboard? Please tell me you're not that stupid. All right, that's it for me. You guys were a lot of fun. Thank you very much. God bless you. Janeway to Ken, we're ready. Acknowledged. I'm downloading the logs into the engineering computer core. This data describes literally every cubic centimeter in this sector. It's over five billion gigaquads of information. It would appear that the theory of infinite velocity is correct. It may be possible to occupy every point in the universe simultaneously. Then it's just a matter of navigation. If we could figure out how to come out of transwarp at a specific point, this could get us home. It could do more than that. It could change the very nature of our existence. Think of it. There would be nothing beyond our reach. That was a fascinating episode of Voyager. I found that um, talked about going faster than was it Warp Ten? I think. Yeah, I hated that episode personally. <laughs> of course, it's silly, wasn't silly science fiction. You know, you can't go faster than speed light. That Mask wasn't the issue. Thing. They turned into all those little, I don't know, devolution creatures in that show, didn't they? At the end, didn't wasn't they? that the one? Yeah, that's the one. I don't. Oh. I didn't like that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Bob doesn't like a Star Trek episode. Oh, there's lots I don't wow. like. You know that. <laughs> Actually, we live in really interesting times, I mean, because of uh, we have millions of scient- scientists out there expanding our knowledge base mm-hmm. every single day. Yeah. And um, with that incremental and slow expansion of our knowledge, we have a, an incremental and slow expansion, expansion of our understanding of reality in the universe. And just last week, there was an example of how sometimes there are quantum leaps Pardon, Pardon the pun. The pun. <laughs> <laughs> in our 
understanding of the universe. It's happened before. You have people like Einstein coming along and postulating the theory of relativity, which shook up the uh, scientific community. And um, just last week, there was an observation. It wasn't really interpreted, because they're being very cautious, but an observation from a group of scientists in Italy. And um, this was on September 2nd, uh, 22nd, sorry, just a few weeks ago, a team of scientists released results of their observations of neutrinos, muon neutrinos to be precise, which apparently have traveled faster than the speed of light. Now, anybody who has the most rudimentary understanding of physics knows that according to Einstein, and experimentation, by the way, and evidence, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Uh, not being a physicist, so either our either that assumption is incorrect or our observation is incorrect, one or the other, right? Yeah, something's wrong somewhere. Yeah. But uh, you and I aren't physicists; we're lay people. So, what are we as lay people to make of such an announcement? First, if it's true, this would have tremendous implications for our understanding of the universe. It would, in fact, rewrite the textbooks. It would be a paradigm shift not seen since Einstein shook the world with his theory of relativity, which overturned our previous Newtonian view of the universe. And second, if it's false, it would still give us further insight, not necessarily into the nature of physics, but the nature of science and the scientific method. This is what really fascinates me. Not so much the idea that muon neutrinos can go just a little bit, by the way, not very fast, a little bit faster than the speed of light. I think their experiment showed that, um, well, let me just describe the experiment first. They got the CERN um, super collider and 700... No, 170, what, I forget the distance now. I think it's 173 kilometers away in Italy. Uh, there was a detector. And what the people at CERN did was they shot these uh, neutrinos through the ground, underground, through the earth, uh, to this detector in Italy. And the, the, ex the experimenters in Italy found out that they're getting the neutrinos just a little bit too fast. And by a little bit too fast, we're talking 60 nanoseconds faster than would be expected, mm -hmm. which means they're traveling faster than the speed of light. Now, of course, they didn't really believe their eyes, first of all, and they do a lot of studies to make sure that there's no error, but Well, that's of course, the speed of light, that distance between the, the CERN collider and Italy is not great. That's why it's such a short time space, right? Of course, yeah. Because they, the distance as a matter travel of fact, is relatively... I'm amazed they can even measure that. As a matter of fact, they would, they would extrapolate on that and say, if this traveling over 173 kilometers is 60 nanoseconds faster than a supernova in another galaxy, which we do observe, we would detect the neutrinos first, mm. years first. Interesting. Before we see the light I, from them. Before but we, we don't. see the light. <laughs> but we don't. Okay. We don't. We actually see... Uh, Actually, in fact, we do see the neutrinos earlier, but that's for a, a plausible explanation because it takes light time to actually escape from the uh, the shock shell of a supernova, but we basically see them at the same time. So this is a very anomalous observation on the part of these scientists. But what really uh, gets me um, is the politics of it, you might say. Mm -hmm. uh, Every now and then we get an announcement of fantastic claims from various fields of science. In, uh, remember in 1989, Pons and Fleischmann gave us the tantalizing hope of cold fusion? Cold fusion, yeah. I Everybody remember that. Yeah, barely two months after their announcement, the press called the I whole affair a my, circus. I thought I'd be driving my fusion car yeah, by now. Yeah, we all thought that. We had fascinating <laughs> possibilities to be able to have fusion at room temperature. Uh, but the media poo-pooed it within two months, called it a circus, and as far as the press were concerned, cold fusion was dead. So after critical review by their peers, who were unable to replicate their findings with any consistency, any last hope of room temperature nuclear fusion was lost. The lead scientists' reputations were severely damaged in the academic community. That's very important. Was that because they were wrong, or because they were found to be misrepresenting something? There was I, a I whole don't know host why someone factors. would. I don't know why someone's reputation would be damaged if it was a genuine error. You know, you know what I'm saying? I think that That's part uh, of Fleischmann uh, in particular rejected uh, the notion that he made an error. I think Pons was more open to the fact that there, there could have been oh. an error. But uh, there was a whole history. 
So there was a bit of a rejection it. of the scientific uh, method a little bit there that there brought them into been, disrepute. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. But in, in any case, um, you're talking about uh, an extraordinary claim which did not pan out, and of course the scientists as a result um, felt the brunt of their reputation. Uh, now the Italian scientists in making their public and making public their results would seem to be as controversial as cold fusion. This this faster than light thing, what a tremendous claim! They've placed their reputations on the line as well. Now there are significant differences in this case, of course. Now instead of two scientists making the claim, we have get this 174 scient- uh, authors to the discovery. There's 174 names on the paper. <laughs> Usually you just have a couple, you know, Pons and Fleischmann. Mm-hmm. But this is, the, I think they list about 40 on the paper and then to say et al., which means and others. They're also reporting on data which they've observed over three years and have meticulously examined for error. They weren't rushed to put this out in the public. Mm. They knew that this was monumental. And so they didn't just all of a sudden say, oh, look what we found. No, for three years they discovered that these muon neutrinos were traveling faster than they um, calculated, and they sat on that data and, and, and looked at it and wondered why this was happening. Now, in posting their results, they were very cautious by not ruling out some form of error which they may have overlooked, despite all their caution. Now, to quote from uh, the conclusion of the paper, quote, despite the large significance of the measurement, re- measurement reported here and the stability of the analysis... <clears throat> <clears throat> the potentially great impact of the result motivates the continuation of our studies in order to investigate possible <coughs> excuse me possible still unknown systematic effects that could explain the observed anomaly we deliberately do not attempt any theoretical or phenomenological interpretation of the results so they're being extremely cautious mm-hmm. but they still have to publish the data a fact is a fact an observation is an observation they publish it Now, this is what impresses me the most and gives me hope for the future of science, that even when faced with enormous pressure to dismiss the results that they publish, anyway, knowing full well that they've done their due diligence, the results, if true, are apparently too important to sweep under the carpet for fear of harming reputations and losing grant funding. There's more than a bit of courage here, if you ask me. In what other field of endeavor do we see such a rigorous self-examination to ensure that what's being published is accurate and open to scrutiny by peers and the public? The popular press is filled with pundits and politicians quick to jump on any statement by others and either take it as absolute fact or dismiss it out of hand without consideration for all the facts. Almost any environmental movement of the day is built on a shaky foundation of questionable science and emotion. Public health officials seem to be constantly changing their ideal government-approved diet plans based on inexact science and powerful lobbying. Just a few examples. Science is all about truth. It's all about peeling away thousands of years of falsehoods and superstitions to arrive at the truth. Its methods are open for criticism and refutation. In fact, any good scientist will welcome criticism. Science begins with the formulation of a hypothesis... And an hypothesis, an assertion, is an assertion which is capable of being proven false. That's the definition of it. So at the very outset of any experiment, the scientist realizes that he may be wrong. It's his job to prove Mm. his assertions. For thousands of years, our knowledge of the universe, and this is really fitting in well with your discussion of knowledge and understanding, Bob. For thousands of years, our knowledge of the universe consisted of stories and anecdotes, fables and fairy tales told by witch doctors and priests and shamans. They received their knowledge, so-called, of the universe by word of mouth, by hallucinations under the influence of drugs or severe physical stress, like spending 40 days and nights alone in a desert. Now, for the past 400 years or so, scientists have developed the scientific method of systematic observation, measurement and experimentation, and a formulating, testing, and modifying hypotheses. This enlightened method of seeking the truth has brought us out of the dark ages of poverty and despair and given us a greater understanding of nature and of ourselves. Now, whether or not these uh, muon neutrinos can move faster than the speed of light has yet to be verified, but the very notion is intriguing. 
The further analysis to test the validity of the claim will advance our knowledge of the universe and bring us just one step closer to understanding the nature of reality. It's a fascinating time we live in when things like these happen. It is, Robert. And, you know, I was wondering when you said that uh, the whole thing's about peeling away falsehoods if you were trying to lead into my next subject. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes a banana is just a banana. When we return after the break at the bottom of the hour here, we will return to discuss what happened at the JLC and perhaps, more importantly, what happened after we discovered that it wasn't an act of racism. We'll be back after this. I was on subway the other day. This is a true story, man. I'm standing there, right? Minding my own business. All right, this black guy goes to get on the train, right? All of a sudden, the door's like closed on him. You know what happens? They kind of open and close up. It's like they're trying to like dice you up. So it's like typical New York. There's like 20 people watching, but nobody helps out. Everyone's just standing like, wow, I think it's going to cut his arm off. So the dude's stuck in the doors. The conductor comes out, starts giving the guy a rough time as he's stuck in the doors. He's going, come on, buddy, let's go. He's like, you're holding people up, let's go. So the dude in the door starts flipping out. He's like, what the hell are you yelling at me for? He's like, I'm stuck in the doors. Then he makes it racial. He's like, I bet you wouldn't say anything to all these crackers sitting over here. And it was like me and three other white dudes sitting there. So he gets into it, this guy. He keeps coming back to that point. Like, I bet you wouldn't say anything to these crackers sitting over here. And after like the third or fourth, crackers sitting over here. Me and the three white dudes start to kind of start like looking at each other like, dude, shouldn't we like be getting offended at this point? This is getting ridiculous. I can literally feel the heat from his fingers. He's going, crackers sitting over here. Somebody should do something. Do you know what? Nobody did We just sat there and took it. That's what sucks about being white in that situation. There's no unity. There's no brothers when it comes to white people. We are not, we, we are just complete individuals. We don't care about each other. We're not, it's not my brother. My brother lives in Ohio. I don't know that guy. I'm not concerned about over here. I'm concerned about from here to right here. Here. That was unbelievable. I got called a cracker for like 18 stops. in the house tonight? Arabs in the house? All right, thank you. Good night. All right. Um, (laughs) What kind of Arab are you? Oh, good. Yeah, you're united. Good. (laughs) One at a time there, fellas. (laughs) What what are you? What? what, what? Libya. Libya, Lebanon, any other L countries? Oh, good. Yeah. Well, just for the record, it, it, just, you're a stone's throw away from each other. Listen, I, um... <laughs> well, you got to be careful. Got to be careful what you say sometimes, eh, Robert? <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> it was. You know, I, I've seen it a, so many times before right here in London, and I, I knew from the very start of, of this banana incident at the JLC that this wasn't a racist, racist incident. And what happened for those people who don't know about it, the JLC is the John Labatt Center. They were playing a hockey game one night, and a fan threw a banana peel out on, although it was called a banana for the first part of this, but a banana peel out onto the ice in front of a player who happened to be black. And the next day, the whole city was up in arms saying that this was a racist incident. We had to go on a witch hunt to find the person who was guilty of throwing the banana on the ice, and uh, which they did. I'm not going to even bother mentioning that individual. He was found out he certainly was not a racist by any stretch of any imagination. And everyone was red-faced, the whole city. And... I was just amazed at how, and I listened to all the, the public debate in the London Free Press and the paper on the radio, you know, how all these judgments were cast before even the slightest investigation was undertaken, Robert. They weren't operating on evidence. And, you know, I don't know, but me, I would never have drawn a racist inference from a fan throwing a banana peel on the ice during a game. I, uh-huh. have to be, I have to agree with you, Bob. When I heard about the incident, I'm going, racism? What's this about? Exactly. You know, and most people after it came out that there was no racist incident, 
confess that that was the case with them. But until then, everybody was on board. And it just goes to show you how, I mean, scary the public can be when it turns into a mob. And sometimes, you know, it's really weird. Now I know all about the the rules now. Now I know all about bananas and black people. Am I supposed to know that? I don't want to know that. I still don't know what the right, connection right. is to well, tell you the truth. Well, it's so stupid. I, you'd never, you know, and I like bananas, so, so leave me alone. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, after the event came out, you know, as if that, that whole thing wasn't enough, some people are completely blinded, I tell you, to reason, not the color, unfortunately, by, by a commitment to, to their victim status. And I heard something just terrible on, uh, on CJBK the other day, which is really what got me going here. But I do have to commend Andy Utman. He and I spar often on the show, and he came out and he, on that next day, and you know what he said? And I couldn't believe it, Robert. I was flabbergasted. And I'll quote him here. He said, We've badly, badly overreacted. We need to be red-faced. Here we have tarnished London's reputation far and wide around the world. It's been on CNN, BBC, ABC for nothing, he said. There was no incident. I'm wishing now, I'm going to confess, he said, I'm wishing now that I had taken a stronger stance saying that there is no evidence of a racial incident, end quote. Good and for I, Andy. And I got to tell you, that was an extraordinarily classy thing to do. It was the right thing to do. It was the right time to do it, like right away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Save me a call. <laughs> you know me, right? So I didn't call in. But then, as some callers called in, I started getting depressed again. I thought, wow, it's all over. You know, the city's not racist. We should all be happy, right? No, people are never happy when they find out that there's no racism around. As I discovered when I, when I proved that a London landlord here was not guilty of racism, and every, all the liberal left was, oh, oh, we're so sad, this can't be true, we got to prove that there's racism. Right? Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say there's no racism, Bob, of course there is. Well, not in the sense that the left promotes it, let's put it that way. No, as I've been, a matter of fact, I've been in this yes. business for 30, 35 years, and, yep. and I've supposedly crossed the path of every racist in the book, and out of all of them, I'd say only maybe one or two are, mm-hmm. when you really talk to them, you know? Now... A fellow called into the show. He called. He said he was a teacher, and his name was Mike. And he, and um, you know, he said that the fact that the that the thrower did not know anything about the connection between the banana and black people was not an excuse, and it's not an excuse for us, you and me, either, Robert, or for Andy Udman, who didn't know. And he argued that if, quote, if this man threw a swastika symbol on the ice, what would happen? Even if you didn't know what the symbol represented, for you to suggest that throwing a banana at a black player is just throwing a banana at a black player and is just a goofy thing is to say the dignity of that player doesn't carry any connotation, and I believe that is incorrect. Then he identified himself as a teacher and said that as a teacher, and this is where I think the problem is, not not the fact that, by the way, he was also a black teacher, um, Yes, I have to be aware of these things far before I become a teacher. I have to be aware of the social milieu that I live in, right? And he says, and here's the problem he has with our saying that, you know, we shouldn't, we have to know about these things, you know, bananas and black people and stuff. What you're saying is that your ignorance absolves you from actually having to take responsibility for the action. I see you rolling your eyes. (laughs) Oh, yeah, this is radio, right? Right. You know, what does that tell you? I'm going, I have to say, you know, I have to take responsibility for some action that somebody else did because Mm -hmm. of my ignorance. It doesn't make sense. He says, I believe that because you're not black, you have the luxury of being, uh, of not being aware. You know? It's almost as if he's saying that, okay, there's a black person. I'm going to go up to this black person and say, now, before we interact, I want to know from you, what in the world is going to offend you? Yeah. Before right. I interact with you, you tell me all of the things. List them. Tell me so what's going to offend you. And, and he says, so, so you're not being aware, and the thrower not being aware. I would have to take his word for it, he says. I can't look into his heart. However, him not, him not being aware does not absolve him from the responsibility of his actions. Well, no, but it does absolve him from anything to do with racism. Yeah. <laughs> he threw the banana. Nobody's arguing about that. Yep. And nobody, Matter of fact, he's going to pay a hefty yeah, fine for that. And, and he says, if I go and steal, and I'm not aware that I've committed a crime, and I'm not aware of the consequences of my actions, and how my surrounding neighbors will respond, that doesn't mean that I should not take responsibility and be held responsible. And, you know, then he starts talking about, we have two neo-Nazi groups thriving in the city and all that, you know. And I have to say, this guy was really pathetic, and all I can say to a guy like Mike is, Mike, get over it. 
I mean, you, you can't think like this. You can't cling to this victim culture. Black people don't have a monopoly on being prejudiced against. Right. I can't, my family moved to this country back in 1952-53. We were of German descent. Germans were not very well liked in this area at the time for a lot of good reasons. Matter of reasons. fact, they had to rename an entire city. Exactly. It was called Berlin, and, or New Berlin, and now it's called and Kitchener. And I remember as a kid being called a Kraut, being called a Catholic. You know, we, 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 we did our things back and forth, but it was never beyond, you know, just kids playing around and things like that. I mean, um, I think this is just a sad thing. That I mean, there's no connection to the, to the whole swastika thing. Now, I remember when... You know, it's, it's, it's as if people don't want us to ever forget about history's ancient racial wrongs. And we should learn about those things, but we don't have to carry them on with us forever. I, I mean, goodness, we've got to let go of this sometime, you know? And I think liberals believe in collective guilt and are opposed to individual responsibility unless it's making a particular individual suffer for the collective guilt, which is what they were doing with this guy, uh, you know, who threw the banana peel. And all I can say is, uh, you know, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do, as... A statement made by someone on a cross who was dying for the collective guilt of the mob that put him there, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I remember uh, when Elijah Elieff, another individual whom I defended before an Ontario Human Rights Commission, successfully, thank goodness, was being held responsible for the collective guilt about the feelings of Asians who lived in Vancouver. And that was here in London. He's here in London. There were folks from some kind of Asian group in Vancouver called as witnesses to his... Um, to his Human Rights Commission hearing that I represented him at. And apparently, Mr. Ilyev was being held accountable for not knowing about the history and plight of Asians emigrating to Canada. And because he rented to so many Asians, his comments about their coming from the jungles of Southeast Asia were considered offensive. Even though that's where they came from, right? Offensive to London's liberals, most notably Unite, the United Church and Susan Eagle, who is not, no longer in town, who made a bid to take over his apartment buildings by charging him with racism. Now, how could he possibly know about the Asians' history? He could hardly speak English himself. He just immigrated from Macedonia just a few years earlier. It was crazy, Robert. You were there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nobody at the Human Rights Commission was demanding that the Asians be required to understand the history and culture of Macedonians and what hurts their feelings. <laughs> you know? Uh, can you imagine? Because they have feelings, too, and they have a lot of problems. Yeah, in but they're white, Bob. They're well, white. is that it? Because, you know... I don't know, we shouldn't have these laws. Our legislators are openly racist by having these kind of laws in the first place. And, you know, the landlord was actually being accused of racism for failing to have, believe it or not, double-glazed windows on his apartment units. That's all it takes. The logic went like this, Robert. Because a majority of tenants in his buildings were Asian, not really evidence of discrimination, would you As a matter of fact, he actually welcomed a lot of, of these tenants in from another unit down the road. Yeah, who kicked them out. And, uh, you know, but, but the fact is, you know, he had a lot of Asians in his building, and his buildings had single glazed windows. Now, that meant he was treating a visibly identifiable minority Asians different from the majority of non-Asian apartment tenants in the city who happened to enjoy double glazed windows on their <laughs> units. I'm not kidding you, It's Robert. so tragic, it's funny. I'm sorry. Those just... tenants have double glazed. Mr. Elieff tenants has single glazed. Thus, discrimination. There you go. Done. And I don't recall exactly how many days we spent arguing and belaboring this outrageous assertion. And that's exactly the kind of injustice system we have whenever we pursue this kind of nonsense. You know, his tenants, mostly Asian, were, quote, subject to unequal treatment when compared to other buildings in town. Right? Not to the treatment he gives to people. That didn't matter. His behavior didn't matter. He treated everybody equally. But his buildings didn't. <laughs> so let <laughs> me know? get this straight. If, if other landlords all of a sudden upgraded their buildings... A landlord who didn't upgrade their building... If he had... If he had particularly an identifiable, identifiable group, he was now a racist because of the actions well, of other landlords. he could be charged by a human rights commission if wow. somebody were to launch a complaint. A great, who knew that a stupid great rule like that? we live in. Which, which groups like the United Church and those yeah. activists always know. So there you go. Banana peel, meet double-glazed window. Okay? <laughs> That's what we're seeing here. You know, not, oh, but not knowing about the double-glazed window imbalances no excuse, say the victim culturalist. You know, you've got to know about it. You got to know about that. Landlords should be trained to understand cultures and sensitivities of their tenants. That's exactly what they recommended. Mr. Iliev had to go for training. 
the sensitivities of Asians because of double glazed windows. <laughs> it was so insane. I want to put a bullet to my head, I tell you. You know, thank goodness the perpetrator was caught at the JLC. Can you imagine where we'd be now? All, the, all the human rights that we'd training. all be going to sensitivity training, all our fire people, everybody. The mayor would be given, uh, you know, speeches and condemnations. The whole thing looks so silly from the top to the bottom. You know, most people are not racist. Get over it. If people have off-color humor, pardon the pun, off-color jokes, it may be all it is. But when you take things too personal, I mean, there are times when, when it's not correct. I'm not going to argue that. But my goodness, when you make a law out of it and you start treating people this way and going after them because of their opinions, I don't know what we're coming to anymore, Robert, and that's all I've got to say. I see you're rolling your eyes. Yeah, I'm really rolling my (laughs) eyes. I just uh, can't take it anymore, but um, that's the way it is. And, you know, we have people in this world who are out there protesting for almost nothing, I understand. Is that true? We'll talk about that right after this break. Okay, sounds good. I'll tell you, that's funny, though, when someone gets racial with you when you're white, because you're not allowed to get racial back, you know what I mean? So it's kind of, like, awkward. The dude's going on, you white boy, you cracker. You're like, yeah, you stupid jerk. (laughs) No, you can't get racial back, because the second you get racial back when you're white, then all of a sudden they, like, wheel out that podium and have, like, that press conference. (laughs) You got to be like that guy standing up there going, I, uh, I disgraced the company. I disgraced myself. I just like to state that there was no air conditioning on the subway. I wasn't thinking clearly. I have nothing against Mexicans. I went to Tijuana. I had a great time. Please, please don't do this. No, that's why a lot of white dudes, we can get uptight in certain social situations. We gotta watch out for the podium. No, that podium can come out of nowhere. You're not even trying to say something like, yeah, I'm thinking of getting a shirt. Uh, what shirt? Uh, I'm thinking of the black shirt. What the hell did you say? Uh, I said black shirt. I should have said African-American shirt. I apologize. Please, I need this position. I have a mortgage. Please don't do this. when it was the 60s. Tune in, turn on, turn over, and end this battle about free love. Totally irresponsible hogwash. We feel our movement will sweep the world. All people will eventually reject commercialism and adopt the concepts of love, peace, and freedom. The summer of love will never end. Hey, skip man, can I get you a ride in the town? Yeah, sure, man, unless you want to take one of our cars yourself. Well, how many cars you got? Uh, nine. 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 Are they stolen? Oh, hardly, man. Seeker's father owns half of India. He donated the cars and the mansion. The uh, main house is just over the hill there. It's got about 85 rooms. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be damned. You guys are rich. Well, we may be into Mother Earth and spiritual values, but we're not stupid. Yeah. Wall Street has loving things to say as well. Welcome back to Just Right. (laughs) So, what is all this about, Bob? Occupy Wall Street is the name of the protest. And I guess the chant is, what do we want? Mm, Something or other. And when do we want it? Mm, Sometime, maybe soon, I think was one of the cartoons (laughs) I saw about it. (laughs) It's a total non-event, but it's an event nonetheless. And I think it's very instructive about why people protest and what do they pick as their target to protest. It kind of shows you there's no such thing as nothing, too. Even a nothing can be a something, you see? <laughs> yes. There you go. Yeah. That's knowledgeable, Bob. Oh. That's very understanding. <laughs> Over the past few weeks, ever-increasing groups of primarily young people have protested on Wall Street. The movement has grown now to include Bay Street and several cities in America and Canada. As far as anyone can tell, the protesters have various motives for their angst. Apparently, they are protesting corporate greed, poverty, global economy. You name it, they're they're going to protest it. 
In an October 4th article by Kelly McFarland of the National Post, an organizer of an upcoming protest on Bay Street, one Brian Batty, said that, quote, We have a lot of critics and skeptics about the fact that currently there are no goals, but it comes down to corporate greed. That's the one thing that everyone is unified on right now, unquote. So just what is corporate greed? Got me thinking. Well, a corporation... Uh, that's pretty simple. Um, it's a legal identity separate from the people who control or own it. It has legal rights and is subject to laws, just as individuals are. That part is pretty simple to understand, but what about greed? What's greed? So I went to my Merriam-Webster. Defines it as, quote, a selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. Unquote. So how does this conflict with a business corporation's goal to generate profit for its shareholders? There's no such thing as more than needed. Hmm. <laughs> Are the shareholders going to suggest to the corporation's board that we have enough profit now? Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's take a holiday and spend some of it before we go and make some more, more profit. Of course not. How stupid. What does the definition mean when it says more of something than is needed? Needed by whom and for what? And for when? And for when? Yeah. The very notion is ludicrous. The very reason to be in business is to make as much profit as you possibly can. That's the raison d'etre of any business. The confusion for the protesters is their ignorance in understanding exactly how businesses make profits. To the average young anti-capitalist out there, they believe that there is only a fixed amount of wealth. And if one corporation has too much of it, then there's that just much less for the rest of us. Mm meaning them, of course. The fixed pie theory. Sure. Yeah. Businesses generate a profit by providing goods and or services which others are willing to buy. In other words, businesses... They serve a need. Ha, ha, whether ha, ha, incorporated ha. or not, generate wealth by giving people what they need or right. desire. <laughs> you know? Now, the protesters will argue that some businesses are acting criminally by misrepresenting their products or services or by cooking the books or employing child labor, etc., blah, blah, blah. But, of course, such businesses are often caught and the CEOs responsible are often jailed for such practices. That's because the rule of law works and capitalism works. If it didn't, then people like Bernie Madoff would still be bilking innocent investors instead of having us to serve a 150-year prison term, which he's doing. I wonder how he's doing with that. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's got about 149 to go. Greed to me means wanting something belonging to somebody else. I think that's a more appropriate yes. definition of the word greed. It's similar to covetousness. And in this definition, the protesters are the greedy ones. They are producing nothing, protesting on the streets, serving nobody, and yet still want something in return. Mm -hmm. Let's examine their case against poverty. Then they do have a case. They're all they're all lefties. That's that's left wing ideology right through and through. You got Corporate it. greed, poverty, global economy. That's all left wing ideology. And let's look at um, when they talk about uh, they're protesting poverty. Let's just look at that. What system in the history of mankind is the most responsible for alleviating poverty? Is it socialism, communism, fascism, tribalism, or maybe capitalism? Do we see these protesters lying in the streets in rags, starving and emaciated? No. We see them well-clothed, some in $200 pairs of running shoes. We see them in good health with cell phones, iPods, wristwatches, pockets full of money. Where'd they get these baubles? Did they fall out of the sky? Did Mr. Obama and the Congress of the United States will them into existence? And do they really need them? Do they really need ah, those things? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, but do I don't they think need they need them? those yeah. things. They could have got, you know, $10 pair of shoes instead of $100 or pair of shoes. Or did some greedy corporation like DuPont, Apple, Rolex, Walmart create, distribute, and sell them to them? What about the global economy? They're protesting the global economy. Why protest that? The global economy, economy simply means trading with businesses and people in other countries. Are they suggesting we don't trade with the Mexicans or Chinese? Why not? Are these protesters racists? I don't think so. Then why protest the fact that some businesses choose to manufacture their products overseas where they employ people who would otherwise might just starve to death? Do they think that they deserve the job more than the hungry Indian family? That sounds pretty greedy to me. Wanting something that somebody else has. Not just greedy, but envious. An even darker emotion. 
The protesters are opposed to the very institutions which have made the West wealthy. And not just for a few, but for everybody. Some of the poorest among us still have food in their cupboards and a television in their living rooms. And they're the really poor. It's a very rare person indeed who is so poor in the United States or Canada who does not have a roof over their head. They exist to be sure, but they are a fraction of a percent of the population. The protesters have claimed that they are the 99%. It's a slogan that they've adopted. No kidding. And by this, they, mean, they imply, of course, that 1% of the population are wealthy, while the rest of us live in poverty by comparison. Well, by comparison to only 100 years ago, 99% of us lived like kings. Compare your life with that of your great-grandparents. Their diet was poor, usually consisting of what local farmers could grow. Today, if we want a pineapple from Hawaii, we need but buy one from the grocery store for very little money. Our recent ancestors had no cars, no computers, no electronic devices of any kind since there was no electricity. Until inventors, industrialists, and capitalists came along and made it happen. Our ancestors lived in poor health and died at a much younger age from illnesses which are now curable with pills made from the evil pharmaceutical companies. I could go on. Some of the protesters have said that they're riding the wave of protests occurring in North Africa and the Arab world. They're protesting for democracy and freedom. Well, sorry to disappoint you guys, but democracy we have to some degree and in some respects. And freedom, well, compared to much of the rest of the world, this is a paradise of freedom, even though Bob and I here are continually uh, trying well, to keep it that way. You want way. to preserve it, right. Preserve yeah. it and, and enhance it. The very fact that you're permitted to conduct your protest, as long as it's peaceful, is proof that you already have what you're protesting for. <laughs> this amorphous feeling that the young protesters are experiencing, this nagging suspicion that there's something not quite right with the world, has led them to protest the very people who are working to make their lives better, the businessmen of Wall Street and Bay Street. Their desire to protest for the sake of protesting is nothing short of a manifestation of the baser desire to have something for nothing. It's a physical laziness brought on by an intellectual starvation. Any true progress in the world is made by people, inventors, scientists, doctors, engineers, businessmen. If there's any one class of people responsible for destruction of wealth, for lowering of standards of living, for the imprisonment of honest people, for greed, for cronyism, for corruptions, it's politicians. And just as there are criminals in the business world, there are honest politicians, in about the same proportion, I should think. <laughs> I would recommend two things to the protesters of the Occupy Wall Street movement. First, get off your butts. Get to work and make a living for yourself. Second, if you really do feel that you need to protest, then go to Washington. Go to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and protest the epitome of moral corruption and greed embodied in your president, who, along with his predecessors, in bringing, is bringing America and the rest of the free world back hundreds of years to the Dark Ages. As good liberals, I don't expect you to protest against your own, of course, so... But for one, th for one thing, you might think uh, protesting President Obama to be an act of racism. There's that banana thing in the yeah, podium again. That, uh, yeah. Can't protest Obama. Before. He's yeah. black. Don't want to offend him. Yeah. Might be thought of as racist if we protest the government now. And for, another, uh, and for another, he shares your hatred of capitalism. So why are you going to protest him? He's just as stupid as you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because... Fascinating thing out there. You know, oh, yeah. corporations have no needs. They serve needs. Yeah. Right? And that's how they... How do you survive. think they get their money? It's, it's amazing, you know? <laughs> and then you have, like, you know, the NDP always saying we're going to increase taxes on corporations. Well, excuse me, but that's where I buy my groceries. Thank you very much. And that's a necessity, you know? And so... I just, you know, where, where can you go with that kind of thinking? Exactly where we're going, into the uh, the pit of constant debt, deficit financing, and we're on the edge of a world collapse, let's face it. Oh, yeah, for sure. So who knows what we might wake up tomorrow to besides a new government. These guys are not helping. <laughs> get off your butts, get a yeah, job. I think we've got to get out of here now, and we hope that you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See you then. Color.
from color into black and white under the bedclothes everything will be here's, here's something very interesting for you why do little children sing when they tease each other they think it makes it worse. I'm telling Joey's mother. I'm telling Joey's mother. The more they want to piss you off, the more they modulate. I'm telling Joey's mother. Like the higher the note, the more you're going to be angry. I'm telling Joey's like tell my mother. She hates you and your whole family. It's not going to do you any good. But how did that ever start? My friends never said, hey, Eddie, go to school and um, make fun of Joey and his mother and sing it, sing it, sing it. Or we never got together, Joey, Joey's mother, Joey's mother. Has to go back in time, maybe the time of the Greeks. Caesar wears a toga. Or the time of Jesus. Joseph's not your real dad. You know, because he wasn't his real dad, and the kids would do that. <laughs>